and God said it was good. We're on. I wish you would just really yell that at me. Um, we're on. Welcome. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 16, and we're going to study through the end of the first chapter. Again, I have to admit, I'm not a fan of the first few chapters of 2 Corinthians. I find them difficult to like, but they are in our Bibles, and we do study them, and there are good things to learn. So let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll sing the Word of God, set the music. We'll sit for silence in a little bit, and then we will come back and study the Word together. Lord, grateful for the Word that we have before us and the sacrifices that went forward by many, many people to bring it forward to today. Grateful for the work that uh, men and women have done to make it clear and help us understand. And we just pray that your Spirit will sanctify the things that we're going to read and study uh, together in this uh, kind of difficult book in the first few chapters. So we just pray that you'll be with us now as we can, as we set aside this short period of time together to study this book, 2 Corinthians, in Jesus' name, amen. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. These people draw near to me with their Files a man, but what comes out of the mouth? This defiles a man. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth? This defiles a man. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but the heart is far from me and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of man. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand, 
Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. flavor for you. All right, we left off last week at verse 20, uh, spent our time talking about how Paul said that I am not nay nay and yay yay or yay yay and nay nay in Christ. I am not a yay yay nay nay person. 
I'm not uh, on one hand saying yes to people and on another hand saying no to people. I am yay in Christ. That was his point. Now, uh, as I just said, 2 Corinthians, he stumbles around a little bit in the first few chapters, so it's tough to really grab on something. I want you to notice, those of you who come to, to campus, that we haven't high-graded through the Scripture. We haven't decided to take the fun ones and do them first. What I mean by fun ones is I'm talking about Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, Timothy, Timothy. We haven't gone to those first. Those are fun to teach. We've done Revelation, Acts, Romans. So just be just beware that dessert is coming. You have to eat your vegetables first. So let's uh, let's read here uh, next four verses. Now he which establish us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. Okay. Who, speaking of God, hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, Paul adds, I call God for a record upon my soul that I spare you. I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not for that we have dominion over your faith but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. Those are four verses. We're going to lead into chapter 2 in a second or in a little while. But let's wrap up chapter 1 and start with verse 21. Paul, after saying, I'm not yea, yea, or nay, nay, but I am yea in Christ. Now he which established us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. God is the one who has anointed, Paul says. Young's literal puts verse 21 this way, and he who is confirming you with us into Christ, okay, he who is confirming us with you into Christ, and did anoint us God. So it appears to me at least that Paul's intention is to help trace everything to God who through Christ did all things. And here he tells us that the one who confirms the believers at Corinth with the apostles, with us, into Christ, is God. That's how he puts it. So he distinguishes the roles here going on between God, the Father, and Christ, his only begotten Son. In the previous chapter, Paul dwelt at length at his own um, veracity as an apostle, and he's taken pains to prove that he's not an inconsistent, wishy-washy apostle. That's yay, yay, nay, nay. That's how he put it. But here he steps back a bit and he makes sure, I want to give all glory to God. It is God who is the one who confirms you, the believers, in us as apostles, into Christ. God is the one who has done that. And we notice here that Paul says, and has anointed us has anointed us and so I think the first us in this verse is Paul speaking about the apostles and the second us speaks to them as believers and God has anointed the believers in with the apostles in Christ Jesus uh, it was customary you guys know this reading the Old Testament that as a picture and type of this anointing that Christians have on themselves that in the Old Testament 
They would anoint kings. They still anoint kings, I think. And they would anoint prophets. And they would anoint priests. And um, upon their entering into an office, they would receive an anointing as part of the ceremony or the inauguration. I think the Queen of England, if, if Netflix is correct, still gets an anointing today. That when they uh, anoint a king or a queen of England, the uh, uh, head of the Anglican church comes in and anoints them. And that's, so it's been passed on from centuries and centuries, millennia, of anointing kings and priests and, uh, into their office. That word anoint is applied to priests, for those of you who take notes, in Exodus 28, 41, and uh, Exodus 40, 51. It's applied to a prophet in 1 Kings 19, 6 and Isaiah 61, 1. And it's anointed to a king in 1 Samuel 10, 15, 2 Samuel 2, and 1 Kings 1, 34. So we see prophet, priest, and king all receive anointings in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. We also know that the anointing uh, is applied to Jesus uh, as Messiah, it's one who was set apart. Jesus was set apart as what? As all three of those. He was set apart as a prophet. He was set apart as a priest. He was set apart as a king. So in the Old Testament, where separate kings and prophets were anointed, Jesus, the culmination, the fulfillment of that, is the one who is anointed as the prophet, priest, and king, right? So uh, that's the highest offer, uh, offer, that's the highest office you could attain in the Bible, that of a prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus was anointed that. Well, here Paul applies it to Christians. And in that day, he's talking to them as being consecrated, set apart, anointed by or to the service of God by the Holy Spirit. And so he says that you have in Christ been anointed with us, the apostles, by God. He actually picked you out to anoint you in this sense. In 1 John 2.20, we read, John writing of believers, we have an unction, it's the word in the King James, of the Holy One, and we know all things. In 1 John 2.27, we read, but the anointing which you receive abides in you. Okay? Now you can think that the believers were being anointed to be Christians in kind of a, a institutional way by reading that. That's not what it means, I don't believe. Uh, the anointing which was used to consecrate the prophets, priests, and kings of the Old Testament was emblematic. It was a sign, it was a physical type of the anointing that Christians get today and that Christians got back then, that when the Holy Spirit pours over them. So we know that the prophets and the priests would have oil, a whole thing of oil poured over their head that would drip down in their beard and over their hair, anointing them. That was just a picture or type of the Holy Spirit when it falls upon you, anointing you as a believer. And uh, the same way that water is poured out, it's another symbol of the Holy Spirit, oil is poured out. Well. Christians are everywhere represented as being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That, let's say I lived out in the woods my whole life. I never knew civilization as it was. I was raised by the Unabomber. And uh, I never really got out into cities, but I was able to talk with God, and He sent His Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit anointed me and made me a Christian, made 
me his and gave me the power to walk as a Christian in this world. So that's kind of what it's talking about. And that's how the former prophets, priests, and kings were anointed physically. So true Christians are simultaneously, by and through the anointing of the Holy Spirit on and over them, and the Holy Spirit moving in them, set apart from this world. That's what it means. You are taken, that Holy Spirit sets you apart from the rest of the world. And that Holy Spirit is what anoints you uh, to move forward in the office of a Christian in this world. And it also simultaneously in Scripture means that you're consecrated to this call. That as a human being that has accepted or acknowledged the life, death, birth, resurrection of Christ Jesus by faith, God chooses to anoint you as His and to set you apart. Well, Paul makes it clear here in this verse we're talking about, verse 22 or 21, that it's God who has done this. Okay? We could say the Holy Spirit does it. That's not what, that's not what Paul says. We could say Jesus does it. That's not what Paul says. Paul says God has anointed you with us in Christ Jesus, and it's God who did it. That's how he puts it. And then verse 22, he says, speaking who, speaking of God, has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Now, so Paul rep represents us with three very important elements to being a Christian in this day and age as well as back then. In the first one, he says, believers are anointed. And we talked about what that is. And there's a direct allusion to the Holy Spirit being poured over a person that is called and set apart and prepared for a specific work. That's that external thing. The second part of it says that God has sealed believers. Now, in the state of Utah, sealing means something very different to a majority of the populace. It's a power of the priesthood thing where people are sealed uh, to other people to live in marriage after this life. Well, that term sealing is used here by Paul to mean something else. And he says that in sealing Christians his, he says that in the Christian heart, there is what is called the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. Okay. So the question becomes, and these questions are for you. Their questions are for me. Do you believe you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that God has sealed you to be His? And if so, do you bear, carry with you the earnest of that Holy Spirit in your heart? Those are three very important distinctions that Paul describes here on the believers at Corinth. And I don't think they're just words. I think there's something to them. So questions come up like, are all Christians anointed with the Holy Spirit? And are all Christians sealed and are all Christians given the earnest of the Spirit in their hearts? Paul says the, the Christians at Corinth certainly were. So I would believe if it, was, if it was given to them, it must be given to everybody else. If so, what does this look like? To be anointed with the Holy Spirit, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, to have the earnest 
of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And how can you tell if it's happened? And then, um, are there outward evidences that must be shown to show that you have been a recipient of the anointing, sealing, and earnest, earnest money, earnest, not money, earnest deposit in your heart? Uh, again, there are outward indicators, apparently, of this in us. Are there signs that accompany these anointings and these sealings? And does a person have uh, to be anointed or sealed and have the earnest of the Spirit in their heart to be God's? Because of the presence of these words in these passages and in other places and other statements by Paul, there's a whole subset of believers who are all about making sure that others evidence the signs of having been anointed and sealed and bear the earnest in their heart. And some of them demand proofs, external proofs of this. And it will happen sometimes um, when you come forward to confess your faith. Uh, sometimes they will demand that tongues are spoken. Uh, they, sometimes they will demand that you receive the baptism in Jesus' name and you will also evidence speaking tongues. That's a big one, that that evidence is that you have had the anointing because in the New Testament times when people received the Holy Spirit, tongues often were associated with the re their receiving it. And so uh, they say that happened then. If you have, are really a Christian, you must evidence that now. And unless you do evidence that, you have not been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And I've met a number of people over the course of my Christian life where people, will, they'll say, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Have you been anointed by the Holy Spirit? Yes, I have. Um, did you, how did that manifest itself? And I say, well, it manifests itself in the spiritual gifts that God has given me to do what I do. And it comes out in that way. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not saying the right thing. Did you speak in tongues? And so that is the connection that we typically have today. So wherein lies the truth? Well, let's talk about the anointing really quickly. Remember, Paul here, he likens, he ties the anointing which God gave those believers to the apostles in Christ, to Christ. And remember that his title of Christ means the anointed one. That's what it means. Christ is the anointed one. And so I think that there is a tie-in to Christ here that is external of the believers. In other words, Paul says that God confirms and anoints us into Christ, and we realize that our anointing is not individual, but it's connected to being into the anointed one. That's how I think, it, that's what I think is being said. Now I think as being put into the anointed one, we too are anointed, that's fine. But since all are his, are anointed in him by God, we can affirm ourselves as on his errand as long as we abide in the vine. John chapter 15, that you abide in the vine, you are abiding in the anointed one, and you therefore are anointed. And since the anointed one was predicted to do things and did them, and, and he did specific things as the anointed one, those who have been anointed with him are empowered to do his works as well, are empowered to do his works as well through Christ. By Christ, all things. I can do all things through Christ. 
Uh, that's where the logic comes in. He is the anointed one. He is the vine. We are in him. We too can then act through his power, not through our own. And I would say that those who are his will, not have to, but will evidence these things that Christ evidenced as the anointed one in their life. Uh, because it is the Spirit of Christ, which I maintain, others don't, but I maintain that the Spirit of Christ is synonymous with the Holy Spirit, that they are one and the same. And there's passages in Scripture that talk about that. Uh, but in my estimation, the Spirit of Christ is synonymous with the Holy Spirit, and it's operating in and through us as God has anointed us to the Anointed One, put us in with Him, made us one with Him, and we are no more responsible for our righteous actions, but we are responsible for allowing Christ to work through us. It's a letting go of the flesh and allowing God to work. And that's supported by other passages where it's God, like where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. And that's the whole thing. So often people will say, we need to, you have to, uh, and it's really not, in my estimation, it's more... Uh, you want to let go. You want to allow him. Not you need to, but you want to allow him. And that's what I think is more contextually consistent. So it's, it's almost like it, with a pneumatic nail gun, and a pneumatic nail gun is a gun that operates by air pressure. Uh, is it the nail gun that is uh, sending the nail forth and driving it into the wood? Or is it the spirit in the nail gun, the pneuma, the pneumatic nail gun? Is it the air that's driving it forward? And I think we are the guns and we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us or not. And I think that is a, 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 a kind of a, a comparison to how God works in us. We allow him to come out or we don't. And that is where the interaction, the free will interaction occurs between man and God. The longer I live in the faith, the less impressed I am by claims of Christianity. Those are just words. I, I, uh, the longer I'm in the faith, the less impressed I am by professions of faith and uh, even worship displays. You know, I know they may be heartfelt and they may be real, but that's not for me to judge. Jesus didn't say you will know them by the way they worship. You will know them by their professions of faith. He did not say that. He said you'll know them by their love. And so, and love is a verb, love is a choice, love is an action, love is something that we allow in our lives or don't allow. And it's by this all men will know you are my disciples. So the longer I live, the more I say, when I see someone who is loving in the Christian sense as defined by 1 Corinthians 13, that the love is patient, kind, long-suffering, blah, 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 all those things, that to me says, that is more of an indication that someone's a uh, anointed Christian than uh, the, the words. Uh, we, we make a lot about the words, but uh, to me, not as impressed. So just as Jesus, the anointed one, and committed his will to his father, and committed his life to his father, even though, when there were times when I'm sure he wanted to do something different, uh, those who have truly been confirmed by Christ, in Christ, by God, do his works. That's, it's, we're his disciples. Uh, they don't have to. They will. Because God has committed them into Christ, according to Paul. So, um, 
Yeah, I think it's a more of a fail-proof description. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if, uh, if you love. And so hand in hand with this anointing, as far as I can tell, comes the sealing now. Uh, and what Paul calls the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. And this is what Paul speaks about in the next verse, verse 22. Who, speaking of God already, he's been speaking of God in verse 21, has also sealed us, sealed us. So now we ask, have you been anointed? Now we ask, have you been sealed? And given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. So there's the third thing. We, when we studied Revelation together, we came upon some passages in chapter 7. Uh, one of them says, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. And we talked all about what the possibilities could mean. What does it mean? to? And some, the literalists think that it means to literally take God's name, maybe the Tetragrammaton, the YHWH, and, and have it put on the actual forehead. Um, but I think we came to the conclusion that it means to have the mind of God, to have the mind of God sealed upon the mind, because the forehead is the forefront of the thinking in, in Hebraisms, and that's what we sort of talked about. So, of course, the futurist view holds that the sealing is literal, but the, um, the sealing in the forehead is probably emblematic of God putting his words and laws in the mind. That's why we renew our mind through the washing of the word. And, uh, in the, and the mind is also kind of connected to the heart. Put it to, into the mind and heart of a human being. They've been sealed in the forehead. These verses were described materially in the history of the Jews, that he would actually do this materially in Ezekiel 9. We read this when we studied Revelation. And the Lord said unto them, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry, for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in my hearing, Go you after them through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare nor have pity. Slay utter old and young, both maids and little children and women. These verses are just anathema to atheists. They just say this could not be a God of love. Uh, slay the uh, children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary then they began at the ancient men who were before the house so all the way back in the old testament we have a type going on here and god says those who have the seal in their foreheads literally do not touch them but the rest of them wipe out start at my sanctuary and work outward take them all right brutal but it was a type and picture for a revelation that where the end was coming upon them and God says, wait, don't hurt the earth yet. I haven't sealed in the mind of my people completely who will be protected from this destruction. And so it was at the end of the age and those who did or did not have the mark in their forehead. So that sealed mark, the sealing is all referred to the mark there in the mind. I would suggest that those who are his today who have received the uh, anointing and have received the earnest of the Spirit uh, upon them uh, will be saved to the New Jerusalem. That is my belief, look, looking especially in, in light of Revelation 21 through 22.5. To me, that is what it means. That today on this, in this world, there are people who have uh, the Holy Spirit sealed them up. 
and they have received the earnest in their heart and they have been anointed in Christ because of God and at death they are members of the new Jerusalem on high they automatically that is the ceiling that gets them into that place and I believe that the rest are outside of it that is my view of the of the future of people in this life based off what I see in Scripture so who has the father sealed well we read in John uh, 6 27 that the father sealed Jesus first of all we read that that he uh, we read from Paul that God the Father sealed all those who were saints in the New Testament as well. So it starts with Jesus and then seals to himself the saints of the New Testament uh, with the earnest of the Spirit. We're going to talk about what that means next. But the term sealed is Greek for, uh, it's Greek, it's sphragizo, and it means to stamp. That's where we get that marking on the forehead. So God says here, Paul says that these believers at Corinth have been stamped. That's all it means. We say sealed. They've been stamped with a signet, like a signet ring of a letter uh, with kings. And it dates back to, to sealing documents. Now guess what's part of that sealing of documents anciently? It's a secret that the signet ring of a king would say, I've written this thing. I don't want this opened by anybody until the person who it's addressed to gets it and opens it and understands the contents. And so it was with the sealing here then. The stamp was to both mark them and to keep them his. But it seems like in those day and age it was secret because they would have been killed had they been known out in the open in those last days of that age. And so we have him sealing them to himself, but I'm not sure it wasn't secret because that's what a signet ring stamp was for, to keep the document closed. So implicit with the sealing is that idea of secrecy, just like when a king would, uh, would close up a document. And that's why they're opening the seven seals in the book of Revelation, to reveal everything that's going on. So uh, Ephesians speaks in the New Testament to Christians being sealed as well. It says in Ephesians 4.30, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That day of redemption is synonymous with day of the Lord. It's synonymous with end of the world. That's all it was saying to the uh, children at Ephesus. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed. You have that stamp on you, right? So to the New Testament saints, we see that sealed letters are people who had the seal of God in their, in their head, if that's where it was. It was done unto the day of redemption. And I think that today, uh, being a, a full preterist, that it's done still to the day of redemption. Christians receive the anointing, they receive the seal, and the earnest on their heart. But it's not, okay, remember, where there's a seal, there's got to be an opening of the seal. Where there's an earnest deposit, there has to be a full payment. Understand those terms in that way. So when you're a Christian here, you are still walking under the seal and you're still walking with an earnest earnest payment like you do with real estate where's your earnest money well we're going to give two thousand down to hold the house make sure that we really want it all right there's your earnest money a time goes by and you forfeit the earnest money if you don't go through with the contract well it's the same thing here in scripture we're going to talk about the earnest in a second so as christians it doesn't say here which is something we really twist that the moment you say, I believe, 
You have been sealed forever with an open mark and you are his past, present, and future. And you know with a full assurity everything that you have and that there is no earnest of the Holy Spirit. There is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I have a pastor friend who used to work down south in Utah and he used to say, we have the completeness of everything what God wants to give you while you walk around here in this world. And I disagree with him. I think that we are given everything necessary while we're in the flesh, but the real revelation is going to come when we see him. After writing that the apostles were predestined from the foundation of the world, you know these passages well, we've covered them. Paul writes um, at verse 13 and 14, appealing to some very similar language that he uses here in 2 Corinthians. He says, remember this, this is in Ephesians 1. And by the way, I, if, we, if we went through Ephesians 1, I don't know if we've done, did that in here or not. Do you remember when I did, showed the foolproof way to sh uh, counter uh, predestination? Does anyone remember we did that in milk or meat or both? You guys, I don't remember either. <laughs> but anyway, Ephesians chapter 1, you can drop dead prove through the language that it is not talking about every Christian. It is talking about the apostles, the apostles, the apostles, all the way through verse 12, because he says, we, 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 us, we, us. And then at verse 13 and 14, he starts talking about, and you, you, you. So when he's talking about predestination of God taking a sum and predestining them, it's in the first 13 uh, verses or so of, first of Ephesians 1. And then afterwards, he starts talking about, and you, 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 showing that it, that is not applicable to all believers at all, like the Calvinists would say. Any case, at verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians 1, Paul says, speaking of Christ, in whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed. So we see that as a preface to that, it says that it was after you believed, after you trusted, verse 13 and 14, that they were sealed. Not predestined from the foundation of the world like the apostles were, to fulfill the role that they had filled. And he says, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance the earnest money of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That passage was telling the believers at Ephesians that, listen, you were sealed when you believed by the Holy Spirit. You were anointed. You've received the earnest in your heart, sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of inheritance, and until the redemption of the purchased possession. So the question is, have we today received the redemption of us, the purchased possession? It seems to me that it was not congruent with mortal life to think that we have received the earnest of our inheritance, uh, uh, which is the redemption of the purchased possession. Have you redeemed yourself in full as a believer today? No, you have not. You still walk around with a body that's decaying that's getting old, that is subject to disease. You still have thoughts that are not of God. You still are, are, are learning. We have not received the purchased possession. We receive the purchased possession at the end of this mortal buy, when we have allowed God to work in and through us. And so that's why it's just an earnest upon our hearts and not the full possession. 
which is why it's so important to grow in the Lord and to stay into Him and His Word and to let God work and to change your mind when you've gone astray, etc. So we note the order of things that Paul describes here in the New Testament believers. Speaking of Christ, he says, in whom you also trusted after, this is Ephesians 1, 13, 14, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Verses verse 1 through uh, 12, tell, Paul says, we were predestined to do what we we're doing. This had nothing to do with when we first believed. We were predestined. Here he's saying, now it's after you believers. Okay, you got that. So proving that the belief in the New Testament believers was requisite first. Belief was requisite first before the sealing of God was given and that they were not predestined to believe and sealed prior as verses 1 through 12 intimate. So we also know that Paul adds that after admitting that they were sealed, that they were, and we come to this line, they, that they were sealed and that they received what's called the earnest of their inheritance or the Holy Spirit of promise in their heart. This is the third point. Until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So these are very similar words to verse 22 in 2 Corinthians that we're reading. Who, speaking of God, has also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts, Paul says to those believers. So in other words, from this we know that the Holy Spirit was to confirm them as belonging to God. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have been stamped with either the knowledge of God in your heart, of his laws and minds. You've been stamped with the identification of being a Christian, having been baptized. I don't know all the ramifications of what the stamp means, but it's by the Holy Spirit. And then God gives us these new eyes, new hearts, new views, new faith, new love as evidence that we are his and that we are regarded as his adopted children and that our hope is genuine and our redemption and salvation are sure if we abide in the vine, I don't care what anyone says, as evidenced by the surety of the signet stamp. But King has put it on that thing. At the end of life, that scroll will be open and every person will be seen as his or not, right? So, but God also grants a pledge. Now comes the personal revelation where the individual knows that they have been anointed the individual knows they have been approved in the kingdom above the individual knows the king has stamped them as his uh, and um, and then therefore able to abide in the new jerusalem here and the new jerusalem there and that phrase is the earnest of the spirit and it relates to this hebrew word called ar harabon and it's like I said, similar to a pledge on property. Today, if you've ever done any real estate deal, you have to put earnest money down on residential real estate typically, and or in other items. When I worked at a, a, a store going through college, people would come in and put things on layaway. I can't afford that jacket, it's $300, but I can put 5% down on it, $15, and uh, I'll just keep coming in and paying it off until Christmas time when I'll be able to redeem it, right? That's the earnest money you put down on a layaway plan. I don't know if stores still do layaway, but that's the whole idea behind it. Well, that's what earnest of the spirit is. It's God's layaway plan, if you want to see it in kind of crude terms. And 
it, it's, it's a down payment that ensures that the item stamped and anointed will be available for full purchase later on. God has done his work in that. In other words, it's a pledge given to ratify the contract. And um, just part of the price, part of the purchase money, the first payment, and it confirms the bargain, and it says the full price will ultimately be applied. Applied to who? Applied to you. The full price, has it been applied yet for those who have the earnest in their hearts? No, but notice it's in your heart. He says, God has given us the earnest in our hearts. So to me, it's not saying that God hasn't fully redeemed us and that we're earning our salvation. It means our knowledge of his purchase of us. Has, we, he, our knowledge of his, uh, is that he's put a down payment upon us. Our knowledge is that he has stamped us, anointed us, and he's put a down payment. But we have not yet realized the full payment for us. And we discover the Hebrew word occurring in the Septuagint and in Hebrews and in Genesis. In the New Testament, it occurs only here. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, also occurs in Ephesians 1.14. And it's always in connection with the Holy Spirit. Always. So in Christianity, it refers to those influences as a pledge of the future glories that we await for. We walk in this life and we wonder, am I really His? Check the earnest in your heart. That's been a deposit made by God that says you are. How am I his? By your faith. I'm his by faith. You are his by faith. That is where the earn, that's why the earnest has been given. You have been a person who's received Christ by faith. I'm not his because I failed in this way. Not at all. You receive the earnest of the spirit in you. I read online now that I've gotten involved in that. Uh, often of people, uh, many atheists say, how can you know that you're right? How can you know that you're a Christian? I, I see this all the time. And it's really a, an individual thing because only you can know. And only you can know if you have the earnest in your heart and if you've been anointed and if you have been sealed. And so you, no one can read what's in your heart we don't show physical oil or water poured over somebody. We can't see the stamp, the sealing that God has done. So individually, I don't think anyone can say to another person who claims to be God's, no, you're not. I don't think it's possible. We, don't, we aren't externally given the ability. So someone who says, I know that I am God's through Christ, I would never refute that. I don't care what walk they have because that's something they claim. Now, the unveiling, the breaking of the seal will come and it would be known, you know, but I'm not going to be the one who tries to determine it. How could we, you know? And it, it lends to a lot of uh, Christian compassion and mercy for each other. If someone says, I just know I'm, I'm his. And uh, by Christ Jesus, when they say that, boy, it's just like, okay, you know, what, what are you going to do? So because of the connection to down payment, it seems that here in this mortal life we have, believers possess only some of the Spirit. That's how we might put it. And because of the comforts that God gives believers here by and through what Paul describes the earnest of the Spirit, 
which includes the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, peace, joy, uh, love for purity, righteousness, long-suffering, all that. It seems that these very same characteristics and impressions exist in totality in the hereafter. And what I mean by that is, if you want to know what heaven is like, uh, examine the content of your heart that God has given you in the earnest of the Spirit. Because as it gives you peace, and it helps you to want to love and forgive and have compassion and mercy and patience and long-suffering and acceptance and not judging and to love righteousness and to eschew evil and all these things that the New Testament talks about, you can expect that if you only have partially of the Spirit given to you by God in your heart, the earnest down payment, that the full expression of that after this life, which is when we would get it, would just be phenomenal. And so I think we get a glimpse into heaven with that gift that God has given us in our hearts. And it's not easy to remember. It's not easy to always appreciate or believe is that important in our fleshly world. But it is something that God gives us. I don't know why he doesn't give us the fullness of that experience of heaven here. I'm sure there's a billion reasons why. But for some reason, we walk in faith. And we yearn for that time when we're released from this mortal existence, from the things that are captured in our flesh, captured in our mind, will, and emotion, uh, tied to our flesh. And when we exit here and go there, the very same characteristics of the heart that God has given us will then blow up, I think. And that is why in all those near-death uh, experiences that people recite, they talk about it just being beyond description and the first word they always use and these are non-christians sometimes is the love and that's why the fruit of the spirit is love colon not love comma it should be the fruit of the spirit is love colon and all those words after it being descriptions of that type of love so we exit from here we enter into this realm of of utter love where the fullness is now in us that's got to be just the most unbelievable experience to move from this place of tears and this veil of suffering and of overcoming self to then having the self left behind and the real self going to God uh, that that encourages me greatly um, so I find it interesting that believers today we can experience um, heaven on earth so to speak in part it will never happen in a utopian sense. We'll never create it like the Mormons are trying, like Joseph Smith tried to do. He tried to bring heaven down on earth. And it's not going to happen materially. But not only, we can't get the fullness, but we can use that earnestness of the spirit that he gives all who are his. And remember what it's like and look at what it's like to know what God is like. And it's a wonderful, wonderful gift. So it appears that here everything is experienced sort of in degrees. That's why the word earnest is used here and not fullness. Um, we might wonder, can believers experience more of the Spirit instead of just the earnest deposit all the time in their heart? I don't know the answer to that. My flesh won't allow it. I get glimpses and it fades. Uh, but others may, you know, maybe you can do that. And if they can, we might also wonder, does that increase of the Spirit in their life here mean something different from, for them there? 
and we don't know the answer, can't really say. What we can say is that by having more of the Spirit with us, or at least having the deposit of the Spirit with us more frequently in our earthly lives is a benefit, just logically. Just logically, if you could have more of the Spirit in you in this life, you logically are going to have a more peaceful life. So we would seek then to possess that. At verse 23, Paul adds a line, and some commentators believe that verse uh, 23 and 24 should be, strongly they say, should be part of chapter 2. I agree with them completely, so much so that we are not going to read 23 and 24 as part of chapter 1. I'm going to say 1 is done. Now let's study chapter 2, and we're going to include verses 23 and 24 as part of chapter 2. So he finishes off with talking about the earnestness of the Spirit in the hearts that God gives. And then he says at verse 1, if we're going to break it up in chapters, by the way, he says at verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as unto Corinth. Completely different subject. He's talking about a completely different thing now. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. And then we move to chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? It's Paul's language of first, Second Corinthians. Ugh. And I wrote the same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love of which I have more abundantly unto you. Now he's referring to 1 Corinthians here in all probability, because we're studying 1 Corinthians in, in milk in the morning, and that book is full of apostolic directives. How to do communion. What to do with a guy who is having relations with his dad's wife. What to do with this. What's going on with that. So the first letter, or and it could be first and second, they're not sure. Paul wrote some strong things to them. Here, he is now talking about why he hasn't come to visit them. Apparently, there was rumor that Paul was a chicken and didn't want to come to Corinth. And he addresses that in these verses. So go back to verse 23. Moreover, okay, in addition to what I just said, I call God for a record upon my soul. I'm asking God as a, to, to reveal the record of my own soul that to spare you, I came not as yet unto Corinth. Okay? So he is now addressing the uh, claim that he was fearful to come and face the believers at Corinth. Earlier in this chapter, Paul tried hard to say, I'm not a, a mamby-pamby thinker. I'm not a yay-yay-nay guy. We talked about this last week. That's not what I am. Here, he wants to convey that, he, that had he come to them, this is his point, as they expected him to, and when he didn't, they're calling him a chicken, and had he witnessed them in their sad condition of doing communion with a big love feast of selfishness and drunkenness, which he talks about, and you know all sorts of other things happening there, 
He says, had I come then, I wouldn't have spared you. That's what he writes. He says, with God be a witness to my soul in this. He actually includes that in the epistle. So he seems to note that a visit was proper. It was in order. But his delaying the visit was more important because had he come when they were in such disarray, he would have dealt with them with severity and with some discipline, and, and, uh, which they deserved. But now he writes that he wanted to be more affectionate with them, and it's a good thing he didn't show up then. So after having admitted that his visit, would have, he would have been harsh on them, he adds something really important, saying, even as an apostle, verse 24, not for that we have dominion over your faith. This is an apostle who says this to the believers at Corinth. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. That is such a radical line. The Apostle Paul says, look, it, I would have been stern with you. I would have been harsh with you. You may have deserved it, but it's a good thing I didn't come. Because now I'm writing to you with the softness because your sorrow that would have been created by my coming and being stern with you would have made me sorrowful, and I get my joy from you as believers. So we would have had this ugly mess on our hands, and he's saying, listen, I, it, I would have been harsh with you, but he says, but not because I have dominion over your faith. He says, but we apostles are helpers of your joy, helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand, by faith. So I sense on this passage that while I might have been harsh, I want you to know that I don't have any dominion over your faith. He opens it up right there, and I love it. As an apostle, let alone an elder or a deacon, this is the apostle saying, I wouldn't have come and tried to beat you up on your faith. Because you stand on your faith, by your faith. I don't have a right to impose upon that stance, right? In other words, Paul admits that he's not there to lord over them, have dominion over their approach to God through Christ. He's there to be a helper for their joy. He admits that by their faith they stand, not in perfect practice, not in perfect righteousness. They stand by their faith. It's a fantastic reiteration by an apostle in the New Testament. So even then, in that day and age, Paul the Apostle wasn't there to bend noses. And he's grateful, he says, that I didn't come to you when I did because I would have been stern with you. And it wasn't required in his estimation now that time has gone by and he's looking back. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the brethren, you're to discipline this man who is having relations with his father's wife. In Milk, we talked all about that. We don't know if it was a stepmom. We don't know anything about it. We just know that there was an improper relationship between uh, a son and his father's wife. In this chapter, however, we read that Paul now says, show him mercy. In, in chapter 1, I mean, 1 Corinthians, he says, remove him. But here he comes back, and, he, and we're going to get to that next week. He says, have mercy on him. It's really interesting. First epistle, be hard. We have to do it. Second epistle, it's really good I didn't come when I did. I sent an epistle instead, 
And having sent that epistle, I told you to get rid of him. Now I'm telling you, bring him back. Okay? We're going to read about that next week. What caused the change? Was it that time went by? Did the Spirit tell him this man has repented? What occurred in him where he wanted to be stern and was stern in the first epistle? Now in the second one, he's calmed down and he's saying, be merciful to this guy. Something's happened. He says, listen, my object as an apostle is to promote your highest joy. That is my object as an apostle. And not to exercise authority and discipline, but allow you to remember that you freely stand by your faith. It's a great reiteration. This passage clearly shows that the apostles did not see themselves as having absolute authority over Christians. Uh, they had authority over the church and the direction it went. But uh, believers stood before God by faith through Christ, in Christ. Faith, faith. In, in, in other words, Paul seems to be saying as long as they stood in faith, the apostles did not see fit to try to interject anything else that would lord over them. And to me, it's clearly stated, it's a standard in the New Testament. And it always reminds me of that story in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus and the apostles, sons of thunder particularly, were walking with him. And they saw a guy casting out devils in his name who didn't walk with them. And the apostles said something like, should we cast him out? And Jesus said, uh, he that is uh, not against us is for us. Very open management. He's not against us. He's for us. Leave him alone. Don't cast him out, John and, and Andrew. So, and at the first council in Jerusalem of the apostles, as we read and studied in Acts, the apostles Paul too and Barnabas, they all came and they met in Jerusalem to talk about what should happen with uh, a Gentile, should they be circumcised. And James throws down the final word on it, showing that Peter was not the Pope. And James tells them what should happen. Yeah, they should be, uh, uh, not be circumcised and just let them remember the poor, meaning the poor in Jerusalem who are suffering greatly because of their faith. Remember the poor, forget the circumcision. It came down. Very, very um, um, deregulated faith compared to what um, Judaism was. Not a bunch of rules and regulations. Why? Because by faith you stand. It's by your faith. So here Paul says it was his duty of the saints. He was called to serve to increase their joy, not lord over them. And all of this we can observe that the duty of, of uh, the apostles was to increase the faith of believers. Then I would think that's the duty of pastors as well. And not to lord over or have dominion over. And that none should exercise dominion over others um, who are, have been liberated because of their faith. And at this point, Paul now jumps into what we have as chapter 2. And he says, but I determined this within myself that I would not come again to you in heaviness. Okay, so somewhere along the line, at the close of the chapter, Paul states the reasons why he hadn't visited them at Corinth and saying that he would have exercised severity on them if he had, and he chose to write them an epistle instead, 1 Corinthians, possibly a 2 Corinthians. And in uh, verses 1 through 5, he amplifies this subject. He says, but I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. And I like the way he puts that, that I made up my mind, Paul says, that I decided at this point, right? He doesn't say, and the Lord told me, 
The Lord told me to. He will do that when it's the Lord. He says, I determine within myself. I'm not going to go and attack those guys. Does that ever happen to you? That when you have the guns loaded and you're, you're you know, um, ready to just take someone out and you go to do it or you're on your way to doing it and the Spirit says, just back off. Just let it go. That's happened to me so many times in my life, I can't tell you since being a Christian. Don't need to fight every battle, especially with me. Come on, McCraney, back off. Let them have their way. I will deal with it all. It's my church, my believers. You don't have to do it. And Paul seems to be saying, I determined within myself I would not come to you again in heaviness. He wrote in heaviness in 1 Corinthians. So what did he decide? That I would come again to the saints not in heaviness, and the translation in Greek is in grief. Oh, you guys are blowing it so badly here. My goodness, how are you ever? He, did, he decided not to do that. In a way, he says, it would both pain his heart and it would be painful to them. Who were people who had really given up a lot to be Christians in that sense of that day and age and had received him by faith? I resolved, therefore, to remove these conditions before I came, before I show up, so that it'll be mutually beneficial to both of us. We will have a good meeting where then I can fulfill my duty as an apostle to increase your joy. That's, his, that's what I think he's saying. And for this reason, I changed my purpose visiting you. When I heard of those disorders, I resolved to send this epistle. And if it was successful, then the way would be open to have a very agreeable visit with you. And here we read the reason why he had not come to them in the first place. He wasn't a wishy-washy fickleness, but it was out of love for them and a desire that his visit should be agreeable and joyful, not one of condemnation. He then provides the thinking he put in this decision, and it gives us our final three verses for today. For if I make you sorry, he's saying, if I came to you with heaviness, made you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad? but the same which is made sorry by me. I love you so much, I'm gonna come and make you burden you with stuff. How am I gonna even be lifted up in this joyful news called the, uh, of Christ? Because I'm bringing down the very people who make me happy. And I wrote this same to you, ready? Lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, here comes the background for 1 Corinthians, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. For out of much affliction and anguish of my heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, he says, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. Next week, we're going to get to the point where he talks about the guy and, the, and his dad's wife. So let me cut to the chase. These words, this same, he says, for if I make you sorry, I wrote this same unto you, is tato uh, ato, and it means, it refers to what I wrote in the previous epistle, 1 Corinthians, Okay. And in particular, what he had written regarding the man who was with his dad's wife. And he told them to excommunicate him. The letter allowed him to avoid making their time grievous. 
and something he wanted to avoid because it would cause both parties sorrow. Now, on the surface, this sounds sort of weak. It sounds like a kind of a weak form of reasoning. But we have to remember that Paul had a lot of enemies in there, and they were after him. And so it would have avoided unnecessary uproar in my estimation. What I love about all of this is the first line of verse 1 when he says, but I determined this within myself. Uh, And then he said that I would not come to you in heaviness. The two things I love about it is I made up my own mind. And we wrestle as Christians in our minds. I believe the wrestling match is intrinsic to being a Christian. It's how God allows our free will to mesh with his will. And we decide who we're going to uh, let prevail, right? And so uh, God's will will be made known and we will wrestle with it. And that two-way street runs in the relationship between God and man. And I love this about the Christian faith, that it is that two-way street. And God says, think, you decide, you make this decision, work it out think it through, right? The second thing I love about the verse is Paul plainly says that he made up his mind not to come to them in heaviness or to cause grief, not to cause sorrow. What I like about this is we're kind of often under the impression that it's our job to throw down on others. It's our job to correct them, you know. I'm very guilty of that throughout my life, to cause grief and infraction upon people who are Uh, maybe not living or doing things the way we want. Paul here decides that was certainly not going to be the case for him. He's not going to visit them in that fashion. So uh, in dealing with ministry, uh, more and more we try very hard not to jump on people who have made decisions one way or another on anything, on anything. Uh, Someone taught me years ago that it is the grace and goodness of God that allows people to say yes. Another way to uh, say is it's the grace and goodness of God that allows people to say no. It's the grace and goodness of God that allows people to soften their heart and change direction. It is not the heaviness of man upon people that gets people to change. I've learned that in spades over my ministry. Now, yeah, some people can change because they've heard you being strong and things like that. But individually, I'm talking about when you're working with an individual. Uh, Typically, I have found that when you throw down one-on-one, you typically make an enemy, they get their hackles up, and you don't get anywhere. But when you show unconditional love in the worst of times when possible, that gives them every opportunity to then want to comply. And I think that's what Paul was uh, saying. It's an easy thing to talk about. It's an easy thing to cause sorrow. So wait and watch and see how God works it out with the people. Next week, we're going to see how God worked it out in Paul's mind and with the people at Corinth over the man with his father. So every now and then, of course, actions are needed. You know, you, have to, you do have to step in and, t- and say something and, because it's important at that time, but the Spirit will guide. And I think we will stop there on that point. Comments, questions, insights. We have no Larry. Who's our Vanna? Oh, Kathy Maggie's our new Vanna. She came out of the intellectual cage. Take this around when you're done, okay? Hmm? Take this when you're done. Yeah. She passed it off to me. Okay, good. Um, hello? 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 You're there. Okay. Um, 
So, you were talking about Paul. He's, overse he's overseeing the church, right? But he's not exercising authority over people's faith. He's giving them some liberty. Um, and I like that so because it's more freeing. Uh, in Christ we are free. Not to do what we want, so to speak, but we're free to love more. And I feel that more uh, as I'm a Christian and as a, in my walk every day compared to, and this isn't like a pick on Mormon show, but I mean compared to when I was in Mormonism, a.k.a. Zientology, <laughs> now what's going around the internet. Um, so, which I think is funny, but anyways, so I feel that if more, I'm more free to love because when I was Mormon, it was I felt more judgmental. You see what I'm saying? You know, they look on you. You have to look the part, act the part, play the part, and you know we got to examine ourselves if Amen. we're right with God, and then He will open up our hearts. I think Paul agrees. I yeah. think that's why he says this now. Yeah, so. Very good. Are you the Vanna? I guess I'm the Vanna today. Anybody else? Yay, yay, nay, nay. <laughs> it's a nay, nay, brother. All okay. right, let's, uh, let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your words. We're grateful for Paul and writing this epistle. We pray that we'll learn from it take the principles from it uh, with us and go out into the world and, and apply them as the Spirit leads. We pray for those who are struggling and people who are down and out and people who are facing what seem like uh, insurmountable situations. We, we learned this morning that our little friend Gracie, that the, the cancer that they said was in remission has returned and it hasn't returned, probably never went away and it's in her brain and this little child is probably going to go to be with you, Lord, but we pray your abundant blessings upon her and upon her parents as they deal with us. And we pray for uh, all the others who are on the list who I can't remember and who have different ailments of different types and people who are trying to make it through in this world, that they will look to you, that they will learn of your existence and your love, that they will receive what you have to offer them through your son and that they too will be able to receive that earnest of the Spirit in their heart, knowing that you have uh, put them on layaway, so that when they lay themselves away, they will be yours, once and for all and completely. So help us to walk in this faith, and to let it have a, an actual presence in our lives, not just a said faith, but one that's in practice, through that verb called love. We uh, seek you now in all things and pray for you in Jesus' name. Amen.